We're going to be reading from Philippians 1, 12 through 21. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will, eager, will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will always have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can take your seats. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, hopefully, last week and the week before, as we're launching our way through the book of Philippians, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, Old school Bible teaching here at Neighbors Church again. I'm super stoked on it. We are encouraging all of you to bring an old school Bible, like a leather one with real pages that you can hold on your lap. And we want to be going through this book, actually having the book open on our page or open on our lap so that we can like underline stuff, put exclamation points, say, wow, that was awesome, whatever, whatever. Let's pray. <laughs> Holy Spirit, come. And speak through these inspired texts, these letters that are thousands of years old, but they bridge, they span the chasm of time and culture to comfort us, to guide us, to correct us, to direct us, and to incline our hearts towards true reality in the resurrection of Jesus. I pray that this book would fundamentally transform the belief structures of these Christians and that even in this room, Father, as there are those who have been invited and are considering Christianity, looking into, investigating, questioning, wondering, Lord, may you answer them where they are and meet them in your resurrection power. And for those today who are struggling, questioning, doubting, deconstructing, may you come alongside them and fill them, Lord, with a path, fill them with a purpose, fill them with the reminders of your good and gracious love in all ways. And so we entrust this time to you now. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. So my wife and I did our 20-year anniversary in Manhattan, but 10 years prior to that, we did our 10-year anniversary in Mazatlan, Mexico. And it was absolutely a blast. And while there, I connected with a group of guys from Colorado State. Colorado State. We were hanging out at the pool bar and just waiting on our margaritas, and we struck up a conversation. And as we got to talking to one another, we started swapping backcountry skiing stories, and we were trying to one-up one another on backcountry backpacking stories. And eventually, we just found ourselves laughing it up and eating bottomless guac and enjoying the ocean views and just having a grand old time. 
And then a lull came in the conversation, as happens in those scenarios. And one of the guys shifted gears, got a little more personal. So, Dan, tell me, what do you do for a living? Now, I, believing I had been welcomed into the sacred circle of ski bum and backcountry soulmate buddies, with great pride, said to them, well, I'm a pastor up in Seattle. I lead a local neighborhood church up in the city of Seattle. Envisioning in my mind their response being, my, what a noble and high calling, Dan. How to might we be saved? Tell me the gospel. <laughs> and instead, there was three of these guys, and I remember watching their body language. They all looked like they'd been hit by a truck. They went like dead still. They got very, very quiet. The disorientation and confusion on their faces, it was painful to watch. It's like I might as well have said, you know, I run a small business where I abandon kittens on the side of the road. Two of the guys, I'm not exaggerating, two of these guys, without a word, they literally turned from the bar and just swam away and went back over to their lounge chairs. The other guy who had dropped the bomb question, Dan, what do you do for a living? He kind of stumbled over his words a little bit. He looked like he had like bitten into a lemon with mold on it while he was trying to talk to me. Uh, wow, wow, uh, a pastor. So like you're like a, like a, a churchy guy, like, like a Christian churchy guy? Man, wow, huh, weird, wow. Well, nice to meet you. I'm gonna get back to my wife. And he swam off, right? Here's the deal, folks. I wasn't offended at all. Honestly, I wasn't even hurt by it. As I sat there by myself, I actually experienced what I can only describe as fear. I literally felt anxiety and fear erupt deep within my chest. I had been judged, condemned, and cast aside in a single instant. There was no recourse. There was no dialogue. There was no follow-up. There was just judgment and rejection, and it was over. And friends, that fear has never left me on the airplane in the new social setting. Hey, Dan, what do you do for a living? I find myself starting to cringe. And if anything, that fear, that anxiety has intensified over these last 10 years since that moment in Mazatlan there by the pool bar. It's not just clergy and Christians, though. Am I right about this? We are all, every single one of us, whether you're a believer here today or not, we are feeling this type of anxiety in multiple ways in the current cultural moment in which we exist. There is this low-grade kind of social anxiety, if not a full-on pronounced sense of panic in most of the contemporary social settings that we all find ourselves in. Here's why. Algorithms, fake news, these things have splintered our society into warring tribes each with their own respective talking points and rules and expectations and symbols and figureheads. And so if you and I use the wrong term, we offer the wrong political idea, we ask the wrong question, we got vaxxed or we didn't get vaxxed, we mask or we don't mask, we use the wrong pronoun in the wrong company, it's over for us. Now, while the rise of cancel culture and internet shaming has indeed called some really, really bad people to public account, it is also simultaneously silencing the traditional means of democratic and cultural and what I would just consider cordial conversation. And this pressure, it's spilling over onto you and I in our classrooms and in our workplace environments. We are now at a stage socially where if you say or do the wrong thing, or even if you did something when you were a dumb teenager that still exists out there in the digital archives, that may cost you the grade in the class or the position at work or certainly the relational credit 
needed to be accepted into any given social circle. And there is teeth. That means that there's teeth to what's happening around us. And our biology, our embodied biology, responds to this low-grade anxiety. We need to understand something about our neurochemistry this morning. This constant fear, this anxiety of saying the wrong thing in the wrong way, in the wrong crowd, our brain and our body interprets that no differently than if we were on the savannah trying to sneak our way through a pride of lions every single day. The deepest part of our brains, hippocampus, amygdala, these deep, deep places in there, the central nervous system, it goes into fight or flight mode in every one of these situations the same way that we would if we were in physical danger. And this, friends, is part of the reason why we as modern Westerners in this cultural moment wake up still fatigued after a long night of sleep. It's part of the reason that we feel exhausted and worn down and constantly on the verge, on edge. It's because we are being chased by digital and social lions from sunrise to sundown. So how do we navigate these intense times? Well, here at Neighbors, we're spending the next three months in the book of Philippians. It's a letter that we're calling a handbook on human flourishing. And we've made the bold proposal that within this letter, we have everything that we need for peace and security and contentment. And we are simultaneously praying that as we make our way through this book, it will be a way marker, a mile marker in our lives of sorts, a milestone that's, that, that we can look back on through this study in Philippians and we can say, whoa, my values, the deep structural foundations of my belief transformed through those teachings and through my time with community in the book of Philippians. From our text this morning, we discover this compassionate courage that is available to each of us in the midst of all the lions that we're running from, from sunrise to sunset. This is a gentle courage, a gentle courage that transforms you and I into a non-anxious presence in the midst of the panic. It creates in us a humble confidence and a hopeful joy so that we can become, through the book of Philippians, a community of courage, literally a community of courage. So as always, we're going to work briefly through the text and then some key meditations and some takeaways for our lives. Paul and the people of Philippi, they were facing more than just the loss of respect at the pool or even the loss of position in the workplace. These people, their very freedom and life was actually in danger. Guys, remember, Paul was writing this letter from prison in Rome. Paul had been put on trial over matters of approved and non-approved social and political talking points. In those days, the Caesar himself, the emperor of the Roman Empire, would publicly declare himself Lord and Savior of the people. And so the good news in first century Rome was that Caesar Nero had come to bring grace and peace to the people. And then along comes this obscure little Jewish rabbi with his controversial and rebellious message saying, Caesar Nero is not Lord. Jesus of Nazareth, a peasant Hebrew from a backwater nowhere, crucified as an enemy of the state. Jesus of Nazareth is Lord and Savior of all. Paul's message was ludicrous 
and it was a treasonous message at the same time. And honestly, guys, it would not have been that big of a deal, except everywhere Paul went, the message was spreading like wildfire, and it was literally turning Roman society upside down, turning entire religious, political, and economic systems on their heads. Wherever Paul went, it was revival or riot. It was a complete train wreck, as the gospel message of Caesar is not Lord, but Jesus of Nazareth is Lord, spread. And so Paul was a problematic figure. And so they imprisoned him on grounds of disturbing the peace, conspiracy, and insubordination to the imperial status quo. Wrong words, wrong crowd, judged, imprisoned, no recourse. Now, hearing the news of Paul's situation in Rome, the Philippians, hundreds of miles away, certainly would have and justifiably have become fearful and uncertain about the situation that they had gotten themselves into. If Paul, their friend, the father of their faith, and the founder of this movement was now in prison, what did that mean for the Philippian people in the city of Philippi? What was going to happen to them? And worst of all, was this the end of the Jesus movement, to which we unequivocally respond, absolutely not. No. Paul, as he wrote this letter to the Philippian community from prison, didn't write to lament his situation to tell of his woes. Instead, he wrote to encourage the Philippians to actually encourage, to give them courage. Verse 12, on your laps, your Bible's open, or up on the screens if you must, or on your phones. That's the worst possible option. I'm kidding. Verse 12, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And so Paul writes, and the first thing he says to them is, rather than his imprisonment being an experience of rejection and injustice and fear, though it were all of those things, Paul says, my imprisonment is actually advancing the gospel. And so he reports to the Philippians multiple people groups, both within the prison and outside of the prison, that are now, because of his imprisonment, moving the gospel forward due to his dire circumstances. Verse 13, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Historians tell us that every four hours, a new guard would rotate through and be assigned to this obscure little Jewish rabbi, Paul. Many historians and archaeologists believe that Paul would have literally been chained to one of these wardens. This is a preacher's dream. Paul literally had a totally captive audience for four hours every single day, rotating through 24 hours a day, and his chains did not deter him in any way. With each rotating guard, he got a fresh new opportunity to boldly share the good news. Hey, do you want to know why you're chained to me? <laughs> every four hours. Verse 14, because of my chains... Most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in my chains." And so on the outside, word was spreading. These Roman guards would leave this obscure Jewish little rabbi being unchained from him 
wiping the sweat from their brow. Finally, I can get away from this guy. And out into the world they would go, and some of them may have become Christians in the process, into the streets and the cities of Rome. And so other Christians were hearing the stories about little Paul imprisoned in Rome, and they were being emboldened. They were being given confidence through his radical testimony and his commitment to share their allegiance to Jesus even more courageously. If Paul from prison can still continue to preach that Caesar isn't Lord, but Jesus is, then I too can alongside him. Now, Paul does say with some lament that some were out there sharing the gospel for wrong motivations. Their hearts were wrong. These preachers, we don't know who they were, exactly what they were doing, but they were preaching out of envy and selfish ambition. Most likely, they saw an opportunity to build their own platform. Ooh, the Apostle Paul is in prison. Maybe now I can kind of build up my own little community that will follow me. And by the way, Paul's in prison. So look at me. I'm obviously the anointed one. That's probably what was going on. Was that disheartening to Paul? Of course. Was that salt in his wounds? Absolutely, but it did not defeat him. Paul's response to prison and Paul's response to preachers of the gospel inside and outside, motivated by love or lust for platform was verse 18. What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Paul could care less why Jesus was being talked about. Paul could care less who was talking about Jesus as long as Jesus was being declared. Paul's joy, his confidence, his purpose, his meaning was rooted in the advancement of the gospel, in the multiplying of the kingdom in the world. And so if Jesus was being talked about for good or wrong reasons, Paul was like, glory, good. I rejoice in what's happening. Verse 19, he, ma he maintained this confidence saying, I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So we see that Paul had this community in Philippi praying for him, and the Holy Spirit was empowering him. Therefore, he was certain that deliverance was going to be his. But this is the key, and friends, listen, don't miss this. Paul is in prison. His friends are praying for him. The Holy Spirit is with him, comforting him, empowering him. He's certain that deliverance is going to be his, but he was not certain about being delivered from that prison. This is so important. Paul had a, a greater faith in a deliverance that went beyond getting out of his terrible earthly circumstances. Did he want out? Yes. Was he certain that deliverance from that prison was going to come? No, but he was certain of a deliverance. Verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed. I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me, to live as Christ and to die as gain. For Paul, no matter what the man's future held, he knew that he would not be ashamed because whether they released him or they killed him, Jesus was being exalted and Jesus would be exalted through his life. If he lived, Paul said, I'll serve Jesus. And if he died, I will literally be with Jesus. And so we come now, having worked our way through the text briefly, we come full circle back to your fears and my anxieties in this current cultural moment, whether that be by the poolside bar in Mazatlan or your break room tomorrow at work or your classrooms or a private meeting with your professors, whatever it may be. When we think of Paul and his great courage and his indomitable joy, 
When we think of him there chained to wardens and guards in prison, we might think, well, Paul was maybe just one of those high-capacity personalities. He was just one of those eccentric people that handled stress better than the rest of us. I could never be like that. Or we might say, well, maybe Paul was one of those goofballs, just that eternal optimist that's just so annoying. No matter what's going on in their life, it's just like, it's all good. The glass is always half full. I don't think so. In Paul's other writings, particularly 2 Corinthians, which is a very raw book, we see that Paul was human just like us. Paul expressed deep fear and horrible pain and terrible loss throughout all of his letters. Friends, Paul did not want to be in jail. Paul did not want to be chained to these wardens. He was praying to get out, but his circumstances didn't cause him to turn his back on God, as goes the common cultural deconstruction moment in our culture, myself included, tempted to say, if this is how God treats me, then I'm out. Paul didn't do that. Let's be honest about Paul. Let's not lionize him. Let's not make him a hero that he certainly wasn't. He was human, just like you and I, sitting here in this auditorium. Paul had to have spent so many nights in that prison, literally just crying his eyes out. Yahweh, God, why? Your promises, I'm in prison. I was called. I thought it would go this way. Where are you? Why? And singing psalms, wiping the snot from his nose, clearing the tears. Praise you, Yahweh. I will trust you in my tears. Paul had to have spent so many nights in utter confusion and frustration. Jesus, you called me. Jesus, you love me. Jesus, I know you are good. And this situation is not good. I am so confused, disoriented, frustrated. This looks nothing like what I thought you would do through me. And then he'd wipe the snot from his nose and the tears from his eyes. And he'd say, but I trust you, Father. Your will be done, not mine. Paul maintained his Christianity in all of its ups and its downs and its all arounds. And here's what happened, friends. Jesus kept, the Holy Spirit kept Paul's heart through a set of commitments that he had made, through postures of heart that he adopted, and through very specific practices. So that when Paul wrote to the Philippian church, though he was probably near coming apart at the seams in his soul, he could still write through these postures of heart and these radical commitments and these practices that God had kept him courageously through, he could still write to the Philippians, be encouraged, be strengthened, have joy. And those same postures of heart and commitments and practices that Paul used to navigate his imprisonment and resistance and setbacks and out-of-control situations, they've been given to us just like they were given to him. What are they? There's no secret sauce here, y'all. There's no secret seven kind of high, wow, that's an amazing seven steps to successfully living through the ups and downs of the Christian life in modern San Diego. It's the meat and potatoes practices of our church community and Christianity throughout all of history. Here they are. Nothing special this morning. Pretty straightforward. To be a community of courage, we need four constants. Mission, Scripture, community, and faith. Mission, scripture, community, and faith. Let's start with mission. Paul had a very specific life mission. In other words, his life goals, his dreams had been reoriented, and they were very focused. And what we see through this little tiny segment that we read is that his true life goals, the purpose of his life, his life mission, it was just on repeat in the man's mind. 
He says over and over, the gospel is advancing. The gospel is advancing. People are hearing about Jesus. Jesus' kingdom is multiplying. What we see from Paul is that he was not concerned about abiding by the status quo talking points and social expectations. Yes, Paul would labor to be to the Jews a Jew, to the Gentiles a Gentile, to the pagan a pagan, to the New Ageist a New Ageist, to the Republican a Republican, to the Democrat a Democrat. Paul tried to be all things to all people that all might be saved. But at the end of the day, he wasn't trying to abide by any status quo talking point. He was operating from a totally different script. And it was the script of the gospel, the good news of Jesus and his resurrection and the coming kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And Paul believed this truth down into his bones. And he loved the people that he was in front of. He loved the people that he was chained to. He loved the people that imprisoned him. And so all he could do is say, I love your status quo talking points. They don't make any sense to me. The only thing that makes sense to me is, can I tell you about Jesus? Can I invite you to be part of this community that I'm a part of? And so whether it was guards that he was chained to or from the mouths of the people that loved or hated him, for Paul, Jesus was being made known. And so Paul's life goal, his meaning, his deepest bones of desire were actually being fulfilled. It's this radical commitment. It was this radical commitment to the kingdom mission of God that gave Paul perspective on everything else from within prison. Now, I want to contrast that with what most of the Western world has made its primary goals, our life missions. See if you fit into this list at all. Uh, I bumped into this recent article, and it was highlighting Gen Z. That's my kid's age. As Gen Z comes into adult, teenagers now coming into adulthood, they are going to be America's largest, most diverse, best educated, and most financially powerful generation in the history of humanity. Congratulations. (laughs) Multiple studies have been done on Gen Z and what's coming for this next generation of Westerners. And one particular is about what do Gen Z want for their future? And lo and behold, what Gen Z wants is what every other generation has wanted, from the greatest generation to the boomers to me, Gen X, to the millennials. We've all wanted the same thing. Number one, to make money and have a successful career. The affluent West, this is what we root ourselves in. We want to make money and have a successful career. For Gen Z, these are the the two most universally important life goals. My life mission is to make money and have a successful career, which leads to number two, I must define myself by what I do. And so career choice and hobbies shape Gen Z's personal identity. And this is what's interesting about Gen Z, even more than race or religion, which is, which is a subtle shift from even like Gen Xers. Even back in my day, religion was still a big deal to my generation. I'm 45. But Gen Z is like, it's all about what you do, which is why mission is so important in the workplace, at least in the vocabulary. It's still just capitalistic shark tank economy <laughs> driving that. And number three, and this is the most fascinating, make money, have a successful career, define ourselves by what we do. And number three, to be famous. Gen Z wants to be famous. Depending on which study you're reading, 23% of Gen Z says being famous is important to them. I personally, and I'm not a sociologist, but I personally, just my armchair sociological thought here, I think it's a a social media phenomenon because longing for fame in Gen Z, these studies show it's their longing for fame is is eight points higher than the millennials and 15 points higher than Gen Z or Gen X, excuse me. And I think the reality is when I was a teenager, it just wasn't possible for me to be famous on Instagram over some stupid dance or TikTok. It just, it just didn't exist. 
I couldn't have a million followers because I said something cool in just the right moment and blew up on YouTube. I just, it wasn't there. We had to, you know, walk uphill both ways in the snow. We had to like, <laughs> we had to do the work to get famous. Back in the day, dude, the underground bands that you guys are all listening to now and you're wearing their t-shirts like Guns N' Roses, like, dude, you heard about those guys through tapes and then you went to these little underground shows and then they blew up and got huge, but that was rare. But Gen Z has access to instant fame, and it is, it is, it is I, would, I would suggest with respect, I think it's warping the mental framework of our identities. Something for you kids to be aware of. I say that not patronizingly to you, but as a dad. Just be careful. Because I want you guys to think about these life goals or these, these places of meaning and mission from Paul's point of view in prison. If Paul's life mission was to make money and have a successful career, what else could he do in prison but throw in the towel and rot away? What else could he do? If Paul defined himself by what he did, his career, i.e., I'm a, jo- I'm, I'm a Roman jailbird, that's what I do, rather than his identity being, I am a saint of God enslaved to the will of Jesus, then his whole identity would have been in the trash heap. If Paul's life goal was to be famous, he definitely should have given up because he was actually infamous. He was not loved and revered. He was hated and rejected. To become a non-anxious, courageous people We have to seriously ask ourselves in this cultural moment, what are my goals? Are they aligned with God's mission? What are my purposes? Are they Jesus' kingdom purposes? Because if my goals are these three things, career, what I do is my identity, and to be famous, I can almost guarantee you that is going to crack at the foundations and leave you broken. But if your goals are to be a kingdom person, enslaved saint to the will of Jesus, then no matter what comes, success or failure, you will find yourself a non-anxious presence. If our goal is to have what the world wants, then we are already at odds with the kingdom of God, St. James tells us. But when we reorient our entire existence around God's purposes and goals, then our circumstances, whatever they be, become avenues in which God's kingdom ideals are unfolding. And so when we are sharing the love of Jesus, when we are with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did, we can truly say with Paul in Romans chapter 8, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Number two, Paul was formed by Scripture. Paul was formed by Scripture. Mission, Scripture. Meat and potatoes, Christianity. Paul's life goal and mission was formed by Scripture. He lived into and out of the true story of God. Paul told the Philippians that he was, uh, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Those lines, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance, those are a direct quote from the book of Job. If we remember the story from Job, for those of you that are familiar with the Old Testament, Job, his situation was dire. He'd lost all of his wealth, all of his health, 10 children, His friends had come alongside him and instead of comforting him had begun to accuse him of wrongdoing and seeing his life circumstances saying to him, God is punishing you, Job. For 40 chapters, Job is like, I didn't do anything wrong. And his friends are like, yes, you did. And it's awful. And so Job continued through his poem, his his, his life to trust and to lament and to pray. And in chapter 13, verse 16, This very line that Paul echoes thousands of years later, Job himself, losing his wealth, his health, his kids, everything, said, indeed, all of this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul was a rabbi and a Pharisee. Some historical scholars believe that Paul would have had the Torah, that is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, memorized, memorized, okay? There's evidence that suggests that Paul as a Pharisee may have had the entire Old Testament memorized. How many of you were ever in Awana? There you go. Paul would have kicked your behind. 
In other words, as Paul sat in that prison, and just put yourself in whatever imprisoning circumstance you're in right now, he was living into the story of God and his goodness and power and plans for his people through the scriptures. Paul would have been sitting there remembering Joseph and his imprisonment in Genesis and how God delivered him to the highest places in the kingdom of Egypt. And Paul would have been thinking, one day we're all going to rule and reign in the kingdom come. Paul must have been repeating to himself over and over and over the words of Joseph to his evil brothers that had betrayed him. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Paul would have been sitting in that prison remembering Noah had an ark in the flood. He would have been being still with Moses as the Red Sea was parting. He had the prayers of the psalmist on his lips. He had the promise of the prophets reverberating in his soul. And the story of scripture that Paul so well soaked in and saturated in was centered and culminated in Jesus of Nazareth. And so Paul's story was of a crucified king where it looked like everything had gone wrong, but he resurrected. Therefore, no matter how dire his circumstances, God was going to deliver him, whether he lived or died. This story would end with all wrongs being righted. And this is our story, church. The scriptures are our foundation and firm hope that give us confidence to wait on God as he does his work in his ways, not our ways. And so a non-anxious, courageous Christian community is saturated in Scripture. It's why we're going through this book verse by verse, chapter by chapter, chewing on every little detail and word so that we can live into and out of the true story in every circumstance we find ourselves in. Mission, Scripture, community, meat and potatoes, Christianity. You hear it every Sunday here at this church. Get into community. Be at Sunday gatherings. Paul relied on his community. Again, from verse 19, through your prayers, Philippians, and God's provision of the Spirit, I know I'm going to be delivered. Paul's commitment to the mission of God It had bolstered this community of confidence outside of the prison to continue sharing Jesus even more boldly, but it had also sparked a prayer movement on his behalf. And Paul felt supported and strengthened by his community. Funny story. A couple years ago, a buddy of mine flew me out to San Francisco. I'm from Seattle. And he flew me out there for for a Niners-Hawks playoff game. Now, for you non-football folk, to say that the San Francisco 49ers and the Seattle Seahawks have bad blood, that's quite an understatement. And so I got flown, 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 flown out there. And um, you need to understand something about Seattle and Niners fans. The, the fan base is, they're all crazy. They've all lost their complete minds. And so I have to confess, this, this game had been sold out for weeks. And I was a bit terrified to be surrounded by like forty-five to 50,000 crazy Niners fans, all in their red and gold jerseys. And I seriously considered before going to the game, maybe I won't wear my bright green jersey. Maybe I'll just wear like a t-shirt and act like I'm neutral. And, and, and the more I considered it, the more I was like, no, no. I'm going to be loyal to my team. I'm, I'm willing to die for my team. And so I put on the brightest green jersey you can imagine. I strolled into 50,000 Niners fans with my head held high. <laughs> And I got to be honest, it was completely overwhelming. I'm serious. They are crazy. 50,000 people. And I was being mocked. I was getting yelled at. I'd go get in line for the, for the hot dogs. And like literally, they would just step in front of me and just like not acknowledge my presence. So I'm being cut off. For, I couldn't even get a hot dog at the game. And so every time I was really getting, kind of getting discouraged and overwhelmed and tired of being mocked, and all I wanted was a hot dog, I'd think, I'm just going to take the jersey off. About the time I'd get ready to take the jersey off, I'd see a lone Hawks fan off in the distance. <laughs> and he or she may be like 10 rows down and 100 meters away from me, but we'd lock eyes and be like, 
I'm with you. I'm with you. And I'd keep my jersey on. Now, that game was crazy. For those of you that may, you guys may remember this game. That game went into double overtime, and the Hawks won. And I'm telling you, like, like the 10 Hawks fans that were surrounded by the 50,000 fans, as we were walking out, every Niners fan was just like this. And you'd see a Hawks fan, it was just like, we were louder than 50,000 people. And this, my friends, this, my friends, is why you and I need each other. We are surrounded by, oh, by craziness right now. And we wear a bright jersey that looks very different, very different. This is why we need each other midweek to be together and talk through how are we doing, just to pray for each other, have a meal together. This is why we need each other on Sunday mornings. It's to keep from mission drift, to saturate ourselves in the true story, and to bolster one another towards faith and good works. And it's not just this human community that we need. We need God's presence. Paul's friends were praying specifically for the Holy Spirit to be with him. And so as a community, we encourage one another week by week at the gatherings, in our communities, via text threads, on WhatsApp, whatever we're using to communicate and be with each other. We're under the scriptures. We're in community. We're bolstering one another's faith. And we are praying for the presence of God to go before us this week in our workplaces and neighborhoods and classrooms. Number four, faith. Paul actually believed. He chose to believe. He did not believe that he would necessarily get exactly what the world would want him to get, namely deliverance from prison, but Paul had faith in the resurrection. And so no matter what came, his life would be for Jesus and his death would be his final victory. For to me, 121, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is the defining mark of the Christian community in this culture. That is the only thing that's going to relieve the anxiety of our social settings. To me right now, to live is Jesus in this workplace, this neighborhood, this family situation, this classroom. To me right now, to live is Jesus. And if they kill me, then I have gained. Paul's goal and mission and purpose was Jesus. And the story that formed him was Jesus' story. And the community that surrounded him was Jesus' community. And so if he continued living, living, then he intended to suffer like Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing, like, doing what Jesus did until the resurrection. This, I recognize, because I'm living it just as much as you, does not come easy. It does not come easy. But Paul was not superhuman. Paul had spent his entire Life, eating the meat and potatoes of Christian practice and posture of heart, practicing mission, reading the scriptures, memorizing them, laboring his way through the book of Leviticus, probably in the initial days saying, I don't know what this means. So he went to Bible Project and learned. (laughs) Intentional community, not kind of happenstance once in a while when it's convenient, but I I can send a quick text so I can cancel out a community tonight. I'm not trying to be condemning. I am trying to encourage our souls for the only way that you will find courage and non-anxious presence in the midst of all this panic is through these meat and potatoes. Friends, listen. There's an anemia in the Western church, and God is wanting to bring renewal. There's an anemia, this sort of kind of, I'm kind of committed. If Instagram doesn't distract me too much, I kind of read scriptures once in a while. I'm sometimes at community. I sometimes sit under sermons once in a while when I have time, if I wake up. This type of Christianity, you can see it peeling off and being buried right now. Cultural Christianity, non-committal Christianity, it's literally just being 
buried in the sands of time as secularism sweeps over us. For your soul, beloved friend, visitor, whoever you may be today, for your soul, as a pastoral and prophetic word, let this be a radically reorienting time, a moment in your life where you say, if I live, is it Jesus? And if I die, is it gain? Because if I live and it's Jesus, that means it looks very different for me in my embodied practices, in my mission, in my commitments, in what I allow to form my life, in who I surround myself by, in what my values are. If it's Jesus for whom I live, and if die is gain, what does that look like? It is this challenge and invitation to our generation, to our generation, me, Gen X, angry, gave you guys the internet. You're welcome. My generation, the millennials, somewhat self-absorbed is the stereotype, (laughs) but so mission-oriented, the millennials, so longing to do right in their workplaces and in their world. And Gen Z, the wealthiest, most diverse, probably most educated generation that, that the West has ever seen, The invitation is to make Jesus your life, to be with him, to become like him, to do what he did, to become a character in this unfolding story of scripture, to read the book and memorize it, to let scripture shape you and bolster your confidence, and to be together with each other in this rhythmic, consistent way where God is given opportunity to form our hearts and to solidify and fortify who we are, that we might stand before the world and say, As I live, I give Jesus. And if I die, please receive Jesus. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Trust him. Trust him. And let this this, this shaky, wavery voice, compassionate courage, and humble confidence in every conversation, in every circumstance, rise up in your hearts. To live is Jesus. If you are a Christian here this morning, hear this prophetic call. To live is Jesus. To die is gain. Holy Father, as we come to communion this morning, may the saints of God respond. May they respond to our brother Paul and his wisdom. He was not superhuman. He wasn't supernaturally anointed. The man had been formed by these meat and potatoes, practices and postures of heart and commitments, and he believed Jesus was alive. I pray that you would sweep our city with revival, that churches would come alive. I pray, Lord, for the saints of God who who are struggling, overwhelmed, anxious in social settings, uncertain about what to do. May you give them a pathway and practices that will solidify them, not to be obtuse or jerks or arrogant or not sensitive to the people around them, but to be like Jesus, to do what Jesus did. And Lord, may our joy here at Neighbors and our sister churches and churches throughout the land and the city, I just pray that our joy would be the gospel is advancing. The gospel is advancing. That today our values are being shifted and reoriented around the kingdom. And that that would put such a smile on our face and a strength in our heart and a skip in our step this week. Fill us with your Holy Spirit as we partake of communion this morning, as we remember what it cost you to save us, as we remember the resurrection, Spirit of God, 
Awaken your people. Send us around the city. Send us around the state. Send us around the globe to herald the good news. Caesar, Biden, Trump, Republicans, Democrats, science, rationality, new age spiritism, wealth, money, sex, race, gender. These are not Lord. Jesus, you are Lord. May we declare and herald your kingship in our hearts and souls and minds. And may you send these saints of God anointed and encouraged and blessed to be the non-anxious pastoral and prophetic presence in their neighborhoods, in their workplaces, in their classrooms. Send them this week to declare Jesus is king. Jesus has come. Jesus has died. Jesus has resurrected. And may every knee bow and declare Jesus is Lord. Let's all stand.